Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Back at the Guide Shack. Today I am talking with Will Volpert, uh, who has been guiding for most of his life, I think. We'll find out here in the podcast. Um, this should be a really awesome episode. Uh, welcome to the Back at the Guide Shack, Will. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to doing this. <laughs> well, good. Um, so the first thing I usually ask people is like, where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in a small town called Point Reyes, California. It was just north of San Francisco near Petaluma, California. And it's uh, for, for folks who've spent some time along the coast, it's a well-known area because it's uh, next to the Point Reyes National Seashore, which is kind of like a wilderness area. And it's a really small community. When I was a kid, there were about 300, 350 people in Point Reyes. So I'd go to school in that area. Uh from late fall until late spring. And then when school got out, my parents ran a rafting business in Idaho. And so we'd load up the Suburban and head out to Salmon, Idaho for the summer. And, oh, wow. sa- and Salmon, if you've been to Salmon before, it's uh, if you've been to Salmon and Point Reyes, you'd understand that there's a lot of polar opposite pieces. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know, politically and... Uh, just the way people choose to live their lives is this, that's two very different places it seems like yeah absolutely and so those were the two areas that i kind of split time as a as a kid and i did that we did that every year until uh and until i was 18 and left uh left the house oh wow so it's pretty obvious how you ended up in a whitewater scene all through your childhood you were spending time in a whitewater environment all summer long oh yeah Yep, absolutely. So my folks had a guide house in Salmon, and I've got two younger brothers, so there were five of us in our family in that house. And then at any given time, there could be up to 12 guides in the house as well. So nice. it, was a, it was a three-bedroom, two-bath house. And to be and... to be clear, no one was forcing anyone to live in these conditions. No. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was very happy, I think. Right. Um, it was a pretty fun atmosphere, and um, as a kid, you know, our heroes were the guides and you know when i was a, a little kid i was always really excited when we knew they were coming back from trips and folks would come back and there'd be a lot of energy and uh you know dinner parties and you know it was you know a really fun way of growing up um and when you're a kid you always think that that's whatever you're experiencing is the norm Right. And so it did take a while to realize that this was something kind of different from what most folks were used to. Right. Super unique. And like everybody you're hanging out with, like they're raft guides. Most raft guides that I've met are really fun people to be around. So like you were saying, they're coming off those trips with these high energy and they're just like, we just had a ton of fun and now we're all back here hanging out with our friends. And you got to experience that from the time you were young. Yeah. That yeah. is awesome. Absolutely. And like we've got, we, uh, uh, we had a handful of guides, so quite a few folks on their crew stuck with uh, that op with that operation for quite some time. Um, and so, you know, we'd see the same people year after year, and um, and uh, uh, became really close family friends with a number of them. Some of them today have continued guiding and are even working for us now. Um, <laughs> nice. And, and so it's been fun to see that transition. And also now that I've got kids of my own, it's been fun to uh, 
kind of provide a similar experience to them where we don't necessarily have crew living in our house or anything like that, but we're really tight knit with our crew and our kids absolutely love it when guides are here and it's fun to see those uh, kind of relationships develop. Nice. Uh, so when did you start guiding? So and if I, I'm pretty sure I remember you said it was on a sweep boat. Did you start? I did sweep spend boating? a lot of time on a sweep boat. Um, so the, one of the things with Idaho and similar is true in Oregon now. It hasn't always been the case, but in Idaho you had to be 18 to guide when I was a kid. And being a guide, the definition was taking paying customers in your boat. And so um, the way around that, the most obvious way around that was to just row a camp boat or a baggage boat. And on the my, my folks had two permits. They had a middle fork of the salmon permit and a main salmon permit. On the main salmon, a gear boat was just a big oar boat. And on the middle fork of the salmon, the gear boat is typically a really unique boat called a sweep boat, which is a huge... Uh, ugly raft (laughs) (laughs) with giant tubes that uh is about the same width as a standard 18 foot boat but just looks obnoxiously large um and it's run with sweeps which are like oars off the bow and stern and in an effort to utilize us us being me and my brothers my parents uh knew that they couldn't use us as guides and so we became the uh camp boats and (laughs) Uh, I think that benefited that definitely benefited us because we loved being on the water and kind of like being part of that team. And when you're a teenager, um, you know, doing something of value and being part of a team and especially being away from your parents and feeling independent is pretty rewarding. And sending us out on six to 12 day trips was a really happy compromise and <laughs> something that I think probably helped my folks out because they uh, suddenly didn't need to employ the same number of folks because my brothers and I could help. Um, and it also probably helped us grow up and experience that independence. When I first started running boats in Idaho, the first time I ever rode the Metal Fork, I was about 12 years old, I think. And <laughs> What size boat? A 14-foot boat. And both my parents actually sat in the front on my first trip and let me row them down the river. And so that was kind of my entry into running my own boat on that trip. Up until that point, we'd always been given the opportunity to, you know, row this rapid or row Mm -hmm. that rapid. And, you know, we knew myself and my brothers, you know, at a really young age were given the chance to kind of do, you know, experiment with, with boats and such. But it wasn't until we were a little bit older that we were able to, you know, have our own boat and kind of be responsible in that regard. And then when I turned uh, 14, I started running uh, uh, a camp boat on the Middle Fork. And it just so happened that that year was a really low water year and there was no sweep boat. Um, because once you start flying in on the Middle Fork, uh, running a sweep boat is tough because you have to fly yeah. this giant boat in and it's easier some and some outfits do do that um and it's not impossible by any means um but on that particular year we decided in june to start flying in which is really early for flying in and 
I was in charge of running the camp boat. So I'd go ahead of the group and set up camp and have the rest of the afternoon kind of off. And then folks would show up and I'd, you know, help with whatever needed to be helped out with. What ended up happening though, is because that year we didn't run a sweep boat, we lost our sweep boat driver. Um, and so the following year, which was a normal water year, it was time to inflate the sweep and get it ready. And then the question was, who's going to run this thing? And because our normal sweep boat driver uh, uh, was no longer there, I was kind of the, the one who was selected <laughs> for that. And so moving forward, you know, up until I turned about 18, I was in charge of running the sweep boat on Middle Fork trips. And uh, my brothers would, you know, either run camp boats on other trips, maybe on the main salmon, or sometimes they'd run like an additional camp boat on the trips I was on, or sometimes they would swamp and kind of just be uh, my helper on those, on, on the sweep. Okay. That is awesome. <laughs> like I've watched people run sweep boats and some people make it look really clean and really uh enjoyable to do and i've watched other ones where it looks like they're trying to row the boat sideways through stuff and you're like this looks terrible oh yeah well when the sweep's going in the right direction and if you're reading the water and and uh if if you know how to run the boat and you're letting it track it can be kind of like a work of art where you, you don't have to do a whole lot and then when it's offline and headed in the wrong direction you have to work really hard <laughs> to get it to get it back on track so you know i've experienced both of those for sure how do you bring it into camp so like i mean you've got this huge oar sticking mm -hmm. off the front of the boat do you like try to bring it into camp sideways yeah well there's a few different methods and it really depends on where you're landing so some camps have big eddies some camps have you know fast moving current some camps are on inside bends or outside bends and so that really changes um, how you uh, think about landing the sweep. And so, if, you know, for starters, you need to be super familiar with the river and the camps that you're going to. Um, the landing a sweep is kind of a one-shot deal. It's not like you can, it's really difficult to like catch the eddy again because right. sweeps really move, move correctly um, and are easy to move when they have momentum. You know, when they're actually like, moving in the current um, when they're at a dead stop it's really difficult to actually get them to go anywhere um, so method a uh, would be um, you kind of like grind the sweep the the boat you know the big tubes kind of against the bank if it's a really slow current you know you, you try to just slow it down by grinding against the bank until it slows down enough where you can hop out and hold it in place um, Something that you're always worried about when you're running a sweep, though, is spinning it. So, you know, when you're landing, that's something that comes into play. So, for instance, if you're familiar with a, a camp called Marble Wright on the Middle Fork, which maybe some of the folks listening are familiar with Marble Wright, there's a really strong eddy in there. And if you catch it too soon at the top of the eddy, you can't actually get to the bank. Um, and so... I have experienced that before where you're like, Oh, like, let's try to catch the eddy early and, and, uh, slow this thing down. And that's such a strong eddy. It stops you right away. And then it spits you back into the current <laughs> and then you have no momentum to get back. And, and so fortunately for me, like I mentioned, I'd normally have a brother, either my brother, Matt or skip with me. 
And so they're, they're kind of like human anchors at that point. And so what you can do is, you know, they'll have their rope ready. They'll be marble rights on the right. So they'd be kind of in, in the back of the boat um, with the with the stern line uncoiled, uh, anticipating landing against the bank and being able to step out onto solid ground and then either running around a tree or whatever. But I've also experienced um, not being anywhere near the land and saying, go jump and watching them <laughs> jump out, swim to shore and then, you know, hopefully wrap the rope around a, a tree. I've also experienced like coming in too hot and uh, being being like, this boat's not slowing down. So you got to jump out right now and watching the human anchor get dragged through, <laughs> <laughs> you know, small trees and bushes and such. We're um, not slowing down. You got to jump out now. Yeah. Go. Yeah. I mean, if you want to catch camp, then because the, the it's it's you don't want to miss camp. Right. You don't want to miss camp. That's a big no-no. That's like rule number one, don't miss camp. And rule number two, you know, just as far as effort is concerned, um, missing camp by a little bit can be brutal because sometimes you can't move the boat back upstream. So you have to unload everything, carry it, (laughs) carry it all back up to camp. That's brutal. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, running the sweet boat is, it's really fun. Like when you're, when you become comfortable with it and, it's an odd boat, so you get stairs and, you know, folks who are visiting the river who might not, you know, be out there all the time, especially uh, folks who aren't necessarily guides. It's a craft of mystery for a lot of folks. And so kind of being on that boat and being in charge of it uh, gives you an interesting perspective. And, and <laughs> it helps. I think that running a sweep, uh, is one of the things that has helped me a lot as far as understanding reading water and that you don't need to muscle things. Right. Um, Try to let the current do as much of the work as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I've always kind of thought about, the, you know, along those same lines, uh, I like to think that there's four different types of boaters out there as far, you know, for reading water and such. And so there's the boater who um, can read water really well, but maybe isn't strong. And so that's the sort of person where, you watch them run a rapid uh, or just position their boat in such a way where they it looks like they're hardly doing anything. You know, maybe they're making little adjustments here and there, but there's no real strain at all. And that's like a really beautiful way to row. Um, and then there's boaters, the exact opposite, who don't know how to read water at all and are, are Strong. just really into muscling things. And right. we see that a lot um, where you look upstream and you think, oh, no. Where's that person? They're doomed, you know? And then at the last minute, you know, they take some monster hero strokes and <laughs> are in the right place and uh, make it work. And then the, like the people you really want to boat with they're the, are the ones who are both. A know, little bit of both. Can, who can read water really well, but if they really need to, they can hit the gas and make something happen. Absolutely. Um, and then the people you absolutely want to avoid... okay the ones you should not that you probably don't want to boat with can't read water and aren't strong so (laughs) so so those those are good ones to avoid but the sweet boat uh if you do try to muscle it um it's going to humble you pretty quickly yeah i would imagine so i mean the the blades on those oars are insane like if you're getting full purchase and you're having to like kind of row the boat essentially sideways that could just that's brutal yeah what well, happens the, if you the, break the downstream so the, or well the surface area on the on the blades is is big um and for folks who row a lot 
you you probably know that um that it's very uncommon for you to actually like use an entire blade right um and we do, we really don't need much surface area to to have purchase and and move a boat around um and so the sweep blades are huge um they're more like rudders in a way because you do a lot of positioning where the boat's really just tracking because it's non most boats are most sweep boats are non-self bailers so they've got two rails that you know the water hits and and they do track really well um but like you said you can get flung around pretty easily and where you see that the most is when you dip the front sweep into an eddy so if you are like needing to make a move and a great example of that would be at uh tapping two at a fishing game rock um you dip your front sweep behind fishing game rock and it can if you're not careful it will throw you out of the boat <laughs> or it will pin you against the sweep skirt and oh that sounds like fun. yeah and so you know what we would do is if we, if you feel that happening you let go of the sweep i'm not and then it's this anymore. and then it's all over the place um and and uh yeah that's definitely something to be aware of and you've probably felt that before you know when you're rowing where you catch a current you know it's normally in an eddy you know, where oh, yeah. you're like, oh, wow, that's grabbing really hard. And so you're so you either feather your oar or pull it out a little bit mm -hmm. and can make that adjustment with the sweeps. It's more difficult to do that once they've grabbed purchase. Sometimes it's hard to get them out of the water. You can't feather them either. <laughs> and then you mentioned breaking the sweep. So that will happen. Um, you know, it's kind of like having a, you always have a downstream oar. Right. You always have a right? downstream. I just imagine that it's like bumping on and, all the rocks as you go through. Yeah, the rapids. And it's a downstream oar that's not in an oar lock. It's pinned in place okay so it's stationary so, so all it does is go up and down so and left to right yeah absolutely so you can't slide it in and out so you know a downstream or in shallow water if you hit a rock and you're running or locks or even if you're running pins and clips it can pop out you know it can you know be a missile past your face oh, yeah. um <laughs> but on the sweet boat you know the boat weighs it's got all the weight of the trip on it um the front sweep stopping doesn't stop the boat. So what happens right. is uh, the, the handle of the sweep will shoot up into the sky and then <laughs> the boat will run over the sweep blade. And in that process, it will tear the blade from the sweep arm. So then there, then you have nothing. Um, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, you know, you still have control of the back sweep and you can, try to stop that thing do you have spare sweep blades you really cut out should of yeah so plywood just sitting on your yep, deck <laughs> yeah so and a lot of companies will even have spare sweep arms because arms break arms have been known to that's pretty rare but if you do it enough eventually you will have a, a cracked arm or or you know it's a mess if you're out there and you don't have the right you, stuff so you just like bring a t small toolkit just for this process it's, of replacing one of these out on the river yeah so the sweep repair kit the, i told you that's absolutely true with the exception of it being small so <laughs> we it's have a very a, large kit. yeah so like our repair kit for rafts here anyway is a small ammo can right um and the sweep repair kit is a like what we would use and other people you know there's a million ways to do this so i can only speak to what we would do but we had a rocket box 
and it had all sorts it had material you know if you're patching a sweep that's a bad deal but we had material we had uh all sorts of uh hardware because the sweep blade you know is attached with bolts and you mm-hmm. need washers and nuts for that um we had probably weren't supposed to have this so i don't think they do this anymore but we had a drill um right. you know if you with a bit so no, you no drill. power tools in the wilderness yeah, people but uh we did have a drill because drilling a hole would be handy you know if you needed to like if the right. thing wasn't lining up correctly and then the other thing that we had almost feels like insult to injury we had if they a, made you hand drill it yeah yeah <laughs> The thought was is that if you needed to repair the sweep, that you were going to be there for a while. And so with that in mind, we also had a small bottle of whiskey Oh, in, nice! in the repair kit. So that way you at least had a friend to hang out with, yeah. Jack. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, you know, the sweep boat, it, low water trips, you know, occasionally, you know, especially if you had gear too low in, in the boat, um, you know, it, it was possible to tear the floor. And, you know, if it was just a small tear, maybe it's not too big a deal. We would always have a bilge pump with us. And so your swamper, maybe you would like bilge the water out every once in a while. But if it was a significant tear and the floor was filling up with water, that's a lot of weight. Oh, yeah. Um, and that will drag the tubes down a little bit. And the great thing about the sweep is you have these huge tubes. You've got the self-bailing floor that's above the surface of the water. So you actually float with that amount of weight. You float pretty high. You're not drawing a ton of water. Um, but if you lose that benefit, you almost have to stop yeah at, uh, for medium and low water trips on the middle fork if well, your your floor would be hanging way down yeah. i would imagine yeah and also i mean the and the weight of the wa- water weighs so much that it would pull <laughs> the tubes down and you'll just get stuck everywhere and that so like i was on afternoon. i was on one trip where we actually needed to stop and unload the boat and flip and flip it over and patch it and fortunately that was on a deadhead so uh, which is when we were floating empty to a put-in location. Our customers weren't mm-hmm. with us yet, but we had a 36-mile day. So, yeah, had, that's and time so, consuming. You know, we had to spend a couple hours working on the boat, and then we were on our way. So, yeah, the lessons with the sweep boat, you know, as with any craft, is uh, you need to be prepared for things to not go right, and that includes <laughs> having the right stuff with you. Nice. Uh, so, let's see. My next question would be since we're talking about river crafts, what is your favorite river craft? If you were just to pick any boat to go do whatever it is that you wanted to go do that day, what would be the most likely boat you're going to grab? Yeah. So, you know, it really depends on where I'm going. I do have, uh, uh, I'm glad we had the sweet boat conversation because I actually have a sweet boat in my yard right now. I saw it when I came in. It's probably the only sweet boat in Southern Oregon right now. And so I have had this uh, weird obsession uh the last year and a half since i've had that boat of trying to take it down rivers where you normally wouldn't see a sweet boat so uh for me i took it down the north fork of the smith a couple months ago okay Um, what was the water level it was uh like nine and a half feet it's pretty low okay um and the sweeps actually do better with like low or medium low flows than high flows because unlike a rat like an ore boat you can almost always put your oars in the water with a sweep, when you're going through wave trains, you lose control because your front sweep, you know, you might not be able to do anything with it. Um, and so for the North Fork, we really wanted uh, kind of a lower flow. And that was like the perfect flow for, I would go a little higher probably, but to experiment, you know, that was a good one for that. Um, and so, you know, along those lines, uh, there's a lot of familiar rivers in this area for me. And 
experiencing them in different ways is a lot of fun. Um, my go-to boat the last couple of years has actually just been, I have a little 12 foot uh, 1993 Avon Explorer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that boat's a lot of fun. It's awesome. I love that thing. And it's really grown on me since, it, uh, uh, I guess, uh, since 2020, where a lot of private trips in 2020 uh in 2021 we're like oh like everyone does their own thing food wise Mm -hmm. and you know there's this covid thing so like you're on your own maybe there's no kitchen communal kitchen and all this stuff and rather than taking a larger boat with like all this stuff i started kind of running more trips with that were less gear intensive and i just had a ball with the 12 footer and uh, didn't need to take that much stuff and the boat is light and it's easy for, for me to pick up on my own and throw it in the back of the truck and if I have to inflate it, you know, even with the hand pump, it doesn't take very much time. And then it fits a stern frame perfectly as a center mount. So I don't have to have a special frame for it and it looks a little weird, but I don't care. So I put the stern frame in and I don't have hardly anything and, and it's versatile so I can take it on the upper Klamath, I can take it on the Illinois, I've taken it on the North Fork of the Smith, I haven't taken it on the Lower Rogue, and for that style of trip, you know, the Lower Rogue's more of a comfort trip, so right. I might not I might not necessarily do that, but if I would take that boat on Carberry Creek or the Upper Applegate, you know, so really small, Carberry. low volume rivers or creeks, and also like on the Illinois, I just did a Illinois trip a week and a half ago, and it was at 1800. And I took the 12 footer. And so, you know, that's not high, but that's, you know, decent. There's some larger features. Uh, is is that, that the same boat that you took on Josephine Creek? Yeah, I took it on Josephine Creek. Um, and so that's a really versatile size boat. It's not the correct boat the way I'm running it right now. It's not the correct boat. Like if, if I wanted to have a passenger with me who's just like right. hanging out in the front, I probably wouldn't do that. But I could also R2 it. So I've taken that I've rode, I've taken that boat down the North Fork of the Rogue, both Natural Bridge, Tacoma, and River Bridge, um, as an R two, and uh, it has a lot of rocker on it. Yeah, it's on got both t- ends, there's tons. Yeah, it's got a big kick on it, and I think that's you know for for steep drops, it's awesome because you don't bury the nose, um, and even like through wave trains, um, you know it's fun to get splashed, but honestly i don't really like water too much like (laughs) i don't like i'm not a big swimmer like if someone was like you want to go for a swim i'd say no most of the time like i'll cool off but the act of actually swimming that's not really for me some people love swimming um and so for me like i love the feeling of like riding up and over waves oh yeah like maybe not like if i've got if i'm running a commercial trip and i've got you know it's 100 degrees and we're on the upper klamath it's great to bury a boat and you know have the nose get buried into a big wave but when i'm on my own i just love that feeling of like the roller coaster riding up and over and not necessarily get, like getting stalled out in any way and so that boat does a good job of that um and there's similar boats to you know avon doesn't make boats anymore but there's other manufacturers that make similar boats to that now yeah um but uh you know it also depends on the stretch that I might be exploring so for instance if we're gonna hike somewhere um i've had a few not in recent years but uh or not in the last couple of years but 
not too long ago, I was trying to just see and explore some really high up uh, tributaries to both the Rogue and the Illinois. And in a lot of those places, you have to hike in a little bit. And for that, an inflatable kayak. I'm not a hard shell kayaker myself, so no, me either. I can't um, carry a hard shell kayak in. But a close second for that might be an inflatable of some kind, and so or an inflatable kayak. And so, I've done. I've I've, I've definitely gotten some inflatable kayaks uh, in some into some places where that was really the only appropriate craft for me. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of just depends on. On where you're you just going. do it all yeah when i take my family out so i've got two little kids and when we do trips um when we first started doing trips i took uh our 18 foot boat we've got a couple 18 footers that we use as gear boats for our commercial trips and you know i knew the kids would like take a nap or fall asleep during the day and having room to spread out you know was important for them and also just taking an enormous amount of stuff to make them comfortable like dry bags of toys and <laughs> I don't know what we would bring, honestly. But um, when we do those trips, since I started with the 18-footer, I tried to take a 16-footer last year for one of our family trips. And Julie saw the boat and she said, that's a small boat. And I was like, this is actually a large boat compared to what a lot of other people were taking down here. (laughs) And so I realized, I was like, oh, I've created a standard of care for my family. So... (laughs) So now we only take the 18 footer and uh, <laughs> that seems to work out pretty well. They don't, I, I actually like running a big boat, so I don't mind. I don't mind that. And they're able to bring everything they want and everyone's got their space and everyone's yeah. happy. So, well, and that's like the beauty of raft camping. Is yes. it, I mean, if you have a big enough boat, you can take as much stuff as you want. It's very glamping esque. Oh yeah. So, and we take a fair amount of stuff with us. So, I mean, on commercial trips, obviously, you know, there's a huge amount of stuff that we're taking and putting on that boat. Um, but, you know, just for a private boat, the 18-footer, uh, the 18 foot size boats are great because you can bring a lot of stuff. And best of all, you don't have to stack stuff up high. What size um, tubes do you guys have on your 18-footers? You know, I... Like 24-inch tubes, I'm not, 26? I don't know, actually. I don't... I was working on uh, Noah's boats. They came in, mm-hmm. and dude, they were like 30-inch tubes. Wow. I'm just like, whoa, oh. what is happening? They're like, we like riding high on the water. Like, yeah. Apparently. Holy well, smokes. That well, that would probably do it. I, don't, I know that ours are not anywhere close to 30 inches, but they, I mean, they are, it's a big boat, so they probably are bigger than they look because everything's in proportion. Um and you know we can load them up with a lot of stuff and they still float high so (laughs) yeah no but you can take quite a bit of stuff with you we took the kids and took a pack and play you know like a crib with us we've done that we've there's a hammock in our yard that we've taken you know it breaks (laughs) down bring the hammock are you doing Um, layover days in these places or are you packing it all up we're doing unpacking so the best thing like what i found with the kids is like they like going down the river and being in the boat and all the stuff but what they love most is being at camp Right. Um, well, that's like the ha- best part. Yeah, like having a camp where they can like easily get into the water and there's not a big drop off and um, and so what we typically do for our family trips is we'll do a five day trip where we only boat for three days. So, um, you know, a typical 
trip for us uh, would be, you know, to raft the first day, raft the second day, and then lay over for two nights or three nights at the same camp. Oh, nice. And then float out the next day. So we've done that quite a bit. And, and they've been down the river enough now where they recognize certain places. And so that's fun because they'll be like, oh, like, we like camping there. We like to do this, you know. And, and uh, they're familiar with it now. So they're excited to – like I talked to my daughter Emma's four and uh last week i said oh emma like before the season starts you and i are going to go on a camping trip and i meant just like driving to somewhere and camping and then coming back home the next day and i said where do you want to go she doesn't know where she wants to go really but she said i want to go to penguin beach so penguin beach that's a name that i they said what's the name of this camp it's on the rogue right it's not really called penguin beach but they don't but i told them it was and i guess they (laughs) and, and unlike our guides they believe me so for her it's called penguin beach and i was like well emma we can't go to penguin beach because we'd have to raft in and <laughs> do all this <laughs> stuff you know but that's where she wants to go so that's fun nice yeah. uh what would you say is probably your like all-time favorite river memory mm-hmm. i know it's really hard for you to choose because you've yeah. been on the river literally your whole entire life oh my all-time favorite river memory well there's a few memories that definitely come to mind. Um, you know, I've got a few like personal highlights of mine, um, which would be uh, uh, the first time I ran the Illinois was really special. That's been a uh, very influential river for me personally, um, because uh, there aren't too many rivers where nowadays where you feel like you might be the one discovering it for the first time. And that wasn't the way it was for me, but it felt that way. Right. And, uh, and every time I ran it, uh, almost every time I've run it, you know, it's almost always felt that way that it's like very intimate river and, and has, has secrets that you can discover. And, you know, it's, uh, fun to, it's rewarding to have that kind of relationship with a river. And so the first time I saw the Illinois, um, I had never heard of it before, uh, up until like a day or two before the trip. And <laughs> I was living in Ashland at the time, and my roommate was this guy, Dan Thurber. He was a guide for oars. I worked for, uh, he worked for oars in Idaho at the time. Uh, I worked for my folks, Idaho River Journeys in Idaho at the time. And so we had that connection that we were both, you know, part of that kind of guiding community. Um, and then we were both going to school at Southern Oregon University. And uh, had started working for the SOU outdoor program running guide trips and so that's how we met each other and and you know in a van ride in a 15 passenger van it's like oh who are you oh I'm so and so I work in I do this blah blah oh you know this person you know so we had that relationship and uh, and so the next year we were roommates and I said and at a certain point I said Dan let's uh, go do the lower Klamath uh, I've never done the lower Klamath. We'll do a three day because our living room, we lived in this tiny apartment and in the living room, we had uh, a raft a frame cooler oars. he had like three kayaks. We didn't have any furniture at all. Oh, we had a foosball table. Oh, good. Yeah. That's so, good. Um, and so what we would do, like what we did for fun was we went boating. Um, and so I said, oh, let's go do the lower Klamath. And he said, Oh, I've heard of this river called the Illinois. I think it's running right now. And I was like, Oh, wow, where is that? You know, I'd never, literally, had never heard of it before. And so uh, we didn't know anything really about it at all. And we went out there. We figured out the shuttle logistics and whatever. 
and we drove out there and uh, uh, he had this old, old all trek and it had been totaled um, but it was still drivable um, and so it didn't have any seats in it and so we just had ply except the driver's seat and so the front passenger seat was there was no seat there was plywood that you could you know sit cross-legged on and then the back of the vehicle also had plywood and so we filled it up with gear um and we drove out to the illinois and the vehicle was not a high clearance vehicle anyway um but due to its accident i think it was even more low clearance than it was supposed <laughs> to be and so we actually had to get out and uh like i had to get out and like move rocks and you know it was it was, it was uh uh, bottoming out constantly we got to the put in it was about 1200 cfs i was 19 and dan was a year older than me and there were these old guys from gold beach and they had like brand new brand new looking avons and they looked very serious and they looked at us and you could tell they were thinking like who the fuck are these guys like, <laughs> why are there kids here what are they doing? Do, Do they like, know is, what's yeah. downstream? So they were like, who are, like, they, they really did question us. And we we're like, oh, we're just like these guides from Idaho. Like, we're just out exploring, having fun. And they were like, are like, we don't think you should be out here. And, <laughs> and we knew that we were, that it wasn't inappropriate for us to be there. So we just ignored them. Ended up having a great trip. And, uh, that's kind of like when I fell in love with the Illinois and just I really like over the next couple of years after that, I tried to get on that river as much as possible. Um, and so that first trip's definitely a memory. Um, another highlight would be uh, seeing the rogue at really high flows. I had an opportunity. Uh, uh, you want to talk about riding a wave train at yeah. high flows. There are some rowdy wave trains on the road. Oh yeah. So I got a call from, um, uh, Aaron Lieberman at the time he was the, I think he was the operations manager for Orange Torpedo Trips and he called me it was uh, first week of February of 2015 and he said hey Will the the Rogue just hit 100,000 in Agnes um, would you be up for going on a trip tomorrow and Julie was five or six months pregnant at the time and uh, and I really hadn't been getting out too much that year, uh, but I thought, I was like, wow, I was like, this is probably, you know, hopefully it's not a once in a lifetime opportunity, opportunity. Right. but I looked at the gauge and sure enough, it hit hundred and I think it hit 104,000 and, um, and it was going to fall, you know, later that night at three in the morning or something, according to the projections. And so I said, yeah, I'll do it, but I really don't want to take my own boat. Like I'd like to share a boat with you. And I, my primary focus is going to just be to like take photos and check it out. And so, uh, the next morning I, so I told Julie, I was like, Oh sweetie, I'm going to go on a little quick, like just a little rafting trip. And she's like, Oh, okay. I didn't explain too much about what I was actually going to do. <laughs> <clears throat> so I met Aaron at OTT, I think at like nine in the morning. And Jeannie drove us in, and uh, we were going to launch from Grave Creek, but the road had washed away. So, <laughs> <laughs> so or there was a huge landslide. I can't remember. So anyway, we turned, we went to Almeda, and we launched. And when we were at Almeda, of course, the in Grants Pass, it was only, it was like twenty five thousand or something in Grants Pass. So, 
Um, so we get to Almeida and I look around and I'm like, oh, I've been on rivers like this before because I've been on the main salmon at 50,000 or something and uh, I've done the Grand Canyon through the Colorado, maybe not at 25,000, but like in the high teens. And, you know, it's not abnormal for rivers to be that high. Like that, right? um, but something I didn't calculate was that in Agnes, it was 100,000. 100, and so between Almeida and Agnes, you know, there would be a big change. And yeah. uh, and so when we first pushed off, I was like, wow, this is really great. This is, you know, it doesn't feel out of control, you know, which is what kind of what I'd been hoping for. I was like, oh, like I didn't want, I didn't really want out of control or to have it feel dangerous. And that kind of changed at a certain point, I think around Quail Creek, um, the, it just felt the river suddenly felt kind of angry and uh, <laughs> much pushier and it was obvious that it was flooded we think that when we launched it was ninety two thousand in agnes that's what it looks like according to the gauge and of course when rivers spike like that you know they go up really high and they quickly and then they drop really quickly and so it's not possible to say um you know what it was when we were actually floating on it but it looks like it was somewhere uh uh, just above 90,000 when we launched and we um, let's see we stopped in a few places we stopped at uh, Horseshoe Bend um, because we'd heard stories of Horseshoe Bend Rapid actually being significant at yeah. high flows um, and we stopped and we walked around the camp and literally we stopped at the top we stopped we parked in the camp of like, horseshoe right. bend where, I was you, like, where you normally put yeah. all your guest tents and i i, I honestly don't like that camp at, during the summer no, um uh, you know the carry's kind of brutal once you're up there and settled it's beautiful and it's fine and such but um it's uh some I, sometimes i feel like it maybe it's not worth that reward when there's so many other great camps in the nearby area but I did tell Aaron, I said, hey, you know, I would be happy to camp at Horseshoe Bend at these flows. You know, this, right. this is like it's a five step program. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> um, and, and that rapid itself wasn't too bad. Um, and then uh, and so we continued downstream and then we stopped at uh, the mouth of Mule Creek, um, which was this. It looked like uh, an ocean right there. You know, so so much water coming in. Um, and, the, you know, the rocks where like where the creek comes in just above the camp of Mule Creek. Mm -hmm. um, there's a cliff right there that you can get up on those rocks and look down on the camp. Yeah. So just a tip of those rocks was out of the water. It was an island in the middle of the river. And Hunter Conley was with us, and he stood on, he got out of his kayak and stood on the rock, and he was on his little island. And So at 30,000, we were only about six inches from the top of Mule Creek Canyon. Mm -hmm. where were you at so the canyon was you were like up at the trail yeah level? the canyon was underwater like the walls right um and the trails you know sometimes above that um uh you know mule creek canyon for us wasn't too much of an issue except for there was a rapid right above where stair creek comes in um, right above where stair creek comes in yeah there was oh, a rapid fun. right above where stair creek came in and there was a giant eddy on the left and a tiny little eddy on the right and a really thin line where the current was moving downstream and i was rowing right then and miscalculated and got shoved in this little pocket eddy on the right 
and had a, a pretty exciting moment where I thought the boat was, I was like, oh, we're doomed. And we're doomed. <laughs> and, it's over. Uh, uh, the, and I was able to keep it straight to the current, um, you know, parallel with that. It looked to me like the current was moving 100 miles an hour and we were at a dead stop in this eddy. And I knew I had to creep out into that current and it picked the boat up and it felt like it felt like it was going end over end forward because <laughs> the back of the boat caught the current. And at a certain point, the boat cut reached the speed of the current and we flattened out and continued downstream but that was a pretty exhilarating moment for us and then another <laughs> one was uh we ran through blossom we were going to scout blossom but we felt that if we stopped on the right we might not be able to get left so we ended up just running it um and then after blossom of course we thought oh yay this is great we're home free now and entering huggins canyon there was this huge boil <laughs> um and hunter poor hunter he was in his kayak he'd been doing great all day he was just downstream of us and and uh he caught the boil he was he was just downstream of us and we were we were running sideways down the river because the boil was running you know parallel to the river also it was right in the middle of the river and so we're kind of surfing that boil and uh not in any risk of flipping or anything like that at all it's just like oh this is how you're going to continue downstream and it's better to do it like this rather than sideways to it and uh poor hunter he caught the boil using his kayak and so he flipped upside down and uh he went to roll but we were too but at that point we had caught up with him and so he rolled and uh was up against the boat and so then we ran him over and he was upside down oh my gosh and then he and then he popped up on our upstream side and he went to roll just as Aaron took a stroke. And so Aaron clocked him in the face with an oar. Oh my God. <laughs> and, uh, and then he rolled up and was totally fine, except he wanted a break from kayaking. So he hopped in the boat with us and we continued oh on our my way. Gosh. And then at, uh, in the face. Yeah. He got hit in the face by a, by a wood oar. So, that, but he was okay. Um, he was fine. But so then we thought, Oh, uh, uh, we're coming up to the Florida flat area. Like that'll be interesting to see. Like I just pictured it being totally flat and it was just a, it was an awesome wave train the whole way through. And then one of the biggest holes of the trip was right at Florida Creek. Like, really? Think, yeah. Like, you know how there's the, like the, in the bottom, uh, waterfall to get up there, there's just some ledges you mm -hmm. have to get up. So yeah. I think one of those, I've got a photo of it is like creating some sort of a, it was a huge hole. Yeah. It was easy to avoid, but it was just out of nowhere. You know, yeah. you know when you go through that area in the summer, you don't really think too much of that. Um, and so that was a great experience. We get to, we, we get close to Foster Bar. And of course, you know, in the summer months, the river's in the river channel. But if you notice the right bank is just littered with trees, you know, they're not really littered, but like there's live trees, you know, that are pretty dense over there. And so of course at 190,000 or whatever it was, the river was in those trees and so we still had to be left because you don't want to go into trees because that's no. like rafting 101 and so we were way <laughs> left and getting landing at foster bar was perhaps the trickiest ferry of the whole trip because the bank was just maybe 10 feet away from the toilets yeah so we had to and, and the current was going through the trees there was no eddy so you basically had to just like what wrap around the trees and just try to hammer. Yeah. 
And I was like, we're going to Cougar Lane. We're going to Cougar Lane. But Aaron pulled it off. He pulled in. And we actually beat the shuttle. So Jeannie was worried that the that the road would be washed away. Bear Camp was... 2015, Bear Camp was open the whole year. Oh, wow. um, that was the year Mount Ashland didn't open. So it was really yeah, bad out. snowpack. Um, and so Bear Camp was open, but we were really concerned that because... I mean, of course, the river was had hit 104,000 because it had dumped rain nonstop for well, a significant amount of time. just the whole road off for it. Well, yeah, we were worried that there wouldn't be a road or that trees would be down. And so Jeannie took the coast route, and we beat her. So it takes four and a half hours, about, from Almeida. And we stopped a handful of times. And so we know we did it under four and a half hours with stops. So maybe our real time was four hours. I don't really know. And then, but the best thing was is, she had taken the coast route there, but we took Bear Camp back. We were like, let's give it a go. <laughs> so we took Bear Camp back. I was back in Ashland. I was back home by 6 p.m. Oh, nice. So I get home. Julie's like, how was your rafting trip? I was like, oh, it's good. No idea that you had just ran the whole rogue. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a great memory. I like that one. And that's something that I probably, I mean, I probably would if, if, the situation was exactly perfectly correct. Maybe I would do it again, but I don't necessarily need to. You know, like sometimes there's a situation where you feel like, oh, like there, this is an opportunity that doesn't come up very much. So I should go ahead and do it. Absolutely. And I've done that. And that was really fun. Maybe I would do it again if the situation was right, but probably not. And I will say uh, I've had a couple other like really great river experiences. I mean, I've had a ton of, I mean, I can't count how many great trips I've been on or great moments that I've had that feel like really important to who I am. But certainly um, like there's little individual accomplishments like that, you know, where like I feel really, it feels good to have done something like that. Oh yeah. Like that's something that I feel uh, uh, not too many people get to experience. And so I feel really lucky to have done that. But in this business, it's such a social thing that we do that some of my most favorite moments have just been being in incredible places with people who I love to be around. And so like, that's, you know, my family just sharing like really easy trips with them. You know, we've had some really fun moments and some of the best memories that our kids have are on the river. And so that feels really good that we're able to provide that for them. And then also, you know, with my own family, you know, our whole, as a kid our family relied on commercial rafting and today my life really does rely on commercial that my lifestyle relies on you know what we do and commercial rafting and uh sometimes when you are in when that's your world it's hard to carve out moments with those some of those people Mm -hmm. um, that you're working with for just like fun time well yeah and, i mean and a lot of them once guiding season's over they're off doing whatever they're doing for the winter so you don't really like get to spend time with all of them in those times either and not everybody has a dry suit yeah no that's <laughs> true that's true yeah people scatter you know and that's one of the i think that's one of the tough things about our industry is that um it's really social and we work with really fun people and you develop um you know really uh kind of like a tight-knit family with some of the people you work with and then it is over in a flash right you know, the summer flies gone. by and everyone's gone and so you, you know that's like, oh. that's uh 
for folks who work in this industry for a long time, you know, it gets it's, it's main main uh, maybe less uh, uh, abrupt. It feels less abrupt just because you're used to it. But certainly, you know, for younger guides, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Honestly, is that it's kind of like being really hot, like you're hot, up high, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's no social activity. And so, along those same lines, like. Uh, you know, just there's a couple trips that I've been on, you know, with, with uh, my parents that have been really cool. And the Rogue has been a great place for that, um, where no one's working and we're just, you know, able to chill and spend time with one another. And same with my brothers, like getting on the river with them is a pretty cool thing. And we're spread out quite a bit. So, you know, Matt's on the Kern, Skip's in Idaho. Um, you know, we all are slammed during the summer and we stay in touch but um uh you know it's pretty rare for all three of us to be on one river together yeah i mean that's definitely got to be something that like now as adults you guys got to cherish that a lot like how often does that get to happen for you guys very i very can't rare. yeah i think the last time we were actually all three of us on the river together was 2013 or 2014 or oh, something wow. so it's been a while so it's been but, a minute but i do get like my brother matt um you know one individually you know we share time together so for instance matt runs kern river outfitters in southern california last year in 2021 uh the water season was pretty short so um in the middle of july some of his guides came up and helped us and matt came up and helped and so we were on the river in that regard and then uh skip comes through southern oregon every once in a while he loves the illinois as well so um when he comes through we try to hop on a trip together nice uh well my last question that i ask people is uh what's your favorite river and it's it from what we've talked about already it sounds like you're really attached to the illinois but your all-time favorite river section yeah what would you say that that is well uh you know, my roots are in Idaho when it comes to boating, and I feel bad I haven't been out to the Middle Fork in quite some time. Uh, but I also have had a lot of trips down there. I think the best river, I mean, if I was given the option of, of either doing one more trip and I could see any river that I've already seen or something new, I'd almost always choose something new. Right. Um, uh if I was going to have to choose one river that, you know, I've, I've already been on, um, it probably would be the Illinois. Um, especially if I knew that I could spend a bit more than three days out there and, and really soak it all in. Um, but that's a, that's a tough one. You know, with the Klamath dam (coughs) stuff happening right now, we are going to have an opportunity for those of us locally to, to have a new river in our backyard. Uh, which is something that probably won't happen again. You know, there's not new rivers popping up. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to, you know, sometime in the next few years seeing what's you know, under the water at those dams. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and doing a, maybe a more continuous trip or just exploring uh, something that really is in our backyard. That's new that you, yeah, you'd be the first, commercial outfitter running it i mean we'll be one of the first ones there's so only that, like four companies with permits for that isn't there yeah so the the way the permits work on the upper klamath um 
I'm not sure how many total there are, but there's more than four. Um, they've been slowly eliminating some of them for, you know, if folks aren't using the permit, they go away. But the last I checked, I think there were probably eight permits out there, but there's really only a handful of us that utilize that run. You have to be local. You have to be a local outfit to, right. to really um, be out there a fair amount. And so when the dams do come out, you know, we're really hopeful that those of us who have permits on the Upper Klamath are um, given the ability to run some of these new stretches. And we've already spent uh, quite a bit of time, you know, with working, you know, I'm with Indigo. Uh, Momentum is up there a lot. Bart from NOAA's. Um, the, the three of us have spent a huge amount of time working on um, recreational interests on these new stretches. And, and that includes uh, participating in flow studies, seeing what some of these new stretches are, um, and working out logistics for access point development so that we can enjoy some of these new places without... Um, you know, having out of control access points, basically man or, or you know, human made um, individual access points. And so this is something big that's way bigger than, you know, just rafting. Um, but it's going to be awesome for rafting. Right. And when we think when I think about like, rivers that I want to run or or uh or rivers that I've enjoyed being on. Again, I'd rather see something new. I'd probably go to the Illinois, you know, if I was told that I, I had one trip left on something that I'd already seen. That's probably where I'd go. Um, but in the short term, I'm really excited about the Klamath Dam stuff. And maybe in ten years, I'll say, oh, like it's great. But I'd still probably rather go do something else. <laughs> um, so, what would that end up looking like? For a, say, a commercial rafting trip, now that those dams are gone, would you be looking at doing like a two or three day trip? And then how does the water flow yeah. work? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's a tricky one because the Klamath, uh, Klamath drainage is really interesting and it's different than what most people expect when they think of a continuous river. And so, for instance, the riverbed changes quite a bit and there's places where the river channel is really narrow where you don't necessarily need as much water for it to be um you know easily rafted and then there's places where the riverbed is really wide the hell's corner stretch in particular which is what we operate on right now we operate on it right now because of the hydropower production and the peaking flows that are generated because of the need for hydropower production. It just so happens that those peaking flows are almost perfect for whitewater rafting. It's not to say that you can't raft it lower and you can certainly raft it higher. Um, but the way that we run trips right now, we are not, we are anticipating not being able to run the same style of trip that we're doing right now. So we're not going to have, we run 16 foot boats with six loads um, commercially in hell's corner and when someone calls today and they say i'm looking at a trip in august on the upper klamath we can sign them up we know that there's water we know almost everything about you know how that trip is going to work out when the dams come out there's no hydropower production 
we know that the flow is probably going to be somewhere between 800 CFS and 1,000 CFS in the Hell's Corner stretch. It might be a touch lower than that. We've done flow studies at 800. We've done flow studies at 1,100. It's doable. Like no one's out there saying it can't be done. What I'm saying is it can't be done the way that we're doing it right now. Right. So maybe instead of six people in a boat, we have two people in a boat plus a guide or three or four people in a boat, I think would be pushing it. So rather than trying to force ourselves to really change the trip that we run that works, that has the, you know, that has the modeling in place, the financial modeling to make it work so that we're successful, we're looking at alternative ways, alter, alternative routes, I guess, um, to run trips. And so those routes, routes is a funny word for it, actually, but uh, runs, essentially. So there's a couple that come to mind. One of them is uh, the bypass stretch, which is immediately upstream of uh, Hell's Corner. And we're Instead of calling it bypass stretch, let's call it the Big Bend stretch. There's an area there that's known as Big Bend. And so that stretch right now is basically from the John C. Boyle Dam to Spring Island. Spring Island is our normal put-in. That is an area where maybe the riverbed is a little bit more narrow. We don't need as much water as we would for Hill's Corner um, okay. to run it. And so that's a potential stretch that we might be able to operate on and continue to run, uh, day trips on. Um, it doesn't, if we were to operate on that particular stretch, it wouldn't make up for what we're going to lose on Hell's Corner. And in fact, uh, there's nothing that compares to what we have on Hell's Corner, which is, you know, from a business standpoint is awesome because it's super consistent um, and it's a great whitewater run. Um, the other stretch that I'm most excited about, and I know the other guys are as well, is um, what we're calling Wards Canyon. And Wards Canyon is from Copco Reservoir um, to, or the end of Copco Reservoir um, to uh, uh, the Copco Power Plant. And so that's a three-mile stretch of river. Um, it's a section that's been dewatered now for over 100 years. And so they literally put the water in a pipe, keep it up as high as possible, and then run it through the turbines at the power plant. Um, and for that stretch in the river corridor, it's there's no water. Um, and we know that it's about 90 feet per mile. It flows through a vertical basalt canyon. It is a stunning place. Um, we were lucky to, you know, with the cooperation of uh, the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, which have been great partners in uh, trying to uh, figure out where recreation goes, you know, post dam removal. They've been great to work with. Through their leadership, we were able to get uh, a flow study and Pacific Power actually did a release that that was intended to replicate what the flows might be low summer flows in wards canyon and so um we did two laps through wards um at two different flows and my gut is that it's a high enough quality of a run 
that even though it's super short, there's going to be a lot of interest in it. And um, there's there's uh, a lot of unknown still about, you know, how a trip on Ward's Canyon might work out. So, for instance, um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is that a uh, three-mile run is pretty short. You know, from the Rogue Valley, it's an hour and a half drive out there. Um, and so perhaps uh, you're lapping it. Um, what I really would prefer to see, and my hope is that, and the great unknown, of course, is that the Iron Gate Dam, once it's drained, will have a quality run uh, <laughs> underneath it. Um, or Copco, once it's drained, will have you know a quality run upstream of it so that you can run more of a continuous day trip that way and not have to get out and lap it. Right. And so there's a lot to learn still. Um, and, uh, you know, that's an exciting thing. Um, the pieces, though, that are that are crucial is that one, um, this none of this works. None of these new sections work. One, if the dams don't come out. Right. Um, and even though dam removal will be super disruptive to our business, um we are fully in support of the removal process um it's a longevity thing um it's a doing what's right thing um it's a it's it's something that's way beyond this little world of whitewater rafting that we're in you know it's something that is uh going to be impactful to cultural uh, different uh cultures you know native uh american tribes um, uh, uh, kind of view the dams as a symbol of uh, something really terrible that happened to their uh, societies in a way um, and so it's way beyond just rafting um, and I feel just really humbled that we've been allowed to participate in this process when it means so much more to um, certain cultures. Um, there's a ton of different stakeholders in the process as well. So, you know, obviously there's recreation, which I would be representing. Um, there's land owners. There are um, power uh, companies. Power companies. You know, there's numerous tribes. Um, and yeah. it impacts everyone a little bit differently. And what I've appreciated about this project is that folks have been given a voice mm -hmm. and allowed to participate. And that's been especially true recently for whitewater rafting outfitters. And so we've been really lucky to be able to participate in a meaningful way and contribute to a project that could, in the long run, be viewed as an example of a successful dam removal. And so I think that's the hope. And that's like the, the, uh, maybe the concept that resonates with everyone is that everyone, you know, wants this to be successful. Right. You know, the stake, the, the, the folks who are for dam removal, they might have different ideas about, um, like how things should go or what the process should be, but we all share, that idea that we want it to be successful and so when we look at bigger projects potentially that could occur in our lifetimes like the hell's hell's canyon dams of the snake river 
someday in our lifetime, those dams might come out and it's really difficult to remake the wheel and say, how do we do dam removal so that it's a success? And with the Klamath dams, there's examples that we're taking from other places, but this is the largest dam removal literally in the history of the world. How many dams are they taking out of the Klamath? Four. Four. And it's the infrastructure also. So for instance, um, there's dams, but there's also canals and piping and power plants. They're pulling all of it out. Yes. It's huge. Awesome. It's a huge project. Um, and so, you know, today is March 28th of 2022. And just a couple of weeks ago, FERC came out with the draft EIS, which said all sorts of different things. It's almost a thousand pages long. And hidden in it, it said that they must take into consideration recreation. And that includes access point development, which is crucial for us moving forward. Because the access points that we have today for Hell's Corner might not be appropriately placed for where the use is going to occur. Right. Um, like, as I said earlier... The way that we run trips on the Upper Klamath today is going to be different than it is post-dam. Um, because, and it's going to be different because, one, if we are on Hell's Corner, um, we're going to have really small boats and not that many people. But two, we're going to operate on a different stretch of river, probably. Um, and for us to do that, we need new access point development. And it just so happens that dams yeah. tend to be built at places of where there's a change of gradient. And that's exactly where some of those places are that we need access development because if you're in a drift boat fishing Copco Valley at 20 feet per mile, you probably don't want to take your drift boat through Ward's Canyon at 90 feet per mile. Probably not. And so where we've really been able to apply pressure is in this idea that during decommissioning of the dams, you have the equipment on hand to develop these sites let's kill two birds with one stone access point development is the one thing that will kill recreation if it's not implemented if the access point development isn't implemented at the time of deconstruction or in a really timely manner it will happen it will slow down i mean eventually you know things will you know folks will figure it out and they'll you know, but for, we're taking we're going to be taking a full year off of running trips up there. We want to get back on the water as quickly as possible, and for us to figure out these runs, we really need the access points built. And in the draft EIS, it was included in the scope of the project. So we feel really good about that. That um, it's something that will help us out, um, and it's going to benefit you know, not just commercial outfitters, but recreational boaters. Right now, over 90% of the use on the Upper Klamath is commercial because the shuttle is horrendous. Oh, yeah, the shuttle's insane. And these new stretches are almost roadside. So and you'd so, be able to just jump on, jump off. You know, oh, and it'd so, be like a nugget trip. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> oh, so, wow. And so, with, but without these access points, it will be It won't be, be a nugget trip. It'll be something else. Something else that's... I think the most important thing about the access point development, honestly, is just this, is these runs do have roadside access, kind not access, but they, they're, they 
where you would put in and where you would take out in some of these places, there are roads. And those roads, between the road and the river is a bank. The Klamath River, as I've already mentioned um, that there's numerous tribes um, that with interest in the Klamath River. And the reason that tribes today have a lot of interest in the Klamath River is because it's where their people were and there are numerous cultural sites throughout the entire Klamath. And when we talk about bringing people to these places, we have to do it in a responsible way. That, and being responsible means knowing the history of these places um, and knowing that there are places where it might not be okay for us to take people and being respectful of that. And it also means controlling use. And I think that's the part of access development that's really important is without these access points and the roads being so close to the river, if we don't put the access points in, it might prevent commercial outfitters from operating because it doesn't look professional to drag your boat over a guardrail and down a steep bank to the river. But it's not gonna prevent non-commercial guys who have a kayak mm -hmm. to say, hey, it's really easy to get down to the river from here, let's do it. You know, that's a common thing in other places. And my fear is that without access development, we are the, the unintentional consequences that is that um, we're not controlling use and therefore people are going to be walking in places they shouldn't be walking. And I think that's something that um, stakeholders see now and people agree with. And so that's why um, the accesses are fingers crossed going to happen. Very cool. Yeah. And, you know, you did mention something earlier about, you know, what kind of trips are you going to run around? Are you going to do a continuous float? And my point is, I guess, long-winded uh, answer to that is that the Klamath is so different in so many different places, like from Big Bend to uh, Hell's Corner to Copco Valley to Ward's Canyon to Iron Gate. I don't know, like, with a normal summer flow, what boat you would take. You know, <laughs> I don't know... Like from a commercial standpoint, I really am not sure I mean, like how, like what you would, like you're not going to take a gear boat through Hell's Corner at 800 CFS. No. Um, but maybe it's one of those situations where you could have a vehicle drive down to the camp mm -hmm. and they just float in Yo. like they do on the lower Yo. Klamath. Totally. I know there's a couple spots like that. But Totally. Then that's going to be an option. And the, the thing Assuming is, access is built. Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll see what happens. I'm not really sure. Right now, in my mind, you know, we only run day trips. Indigo Creek only runs day trips on the Upper Klamath. And when I'm looking at some of these new stretches, I'm thinking day trips. But uh, there's we're going to learn a lot in the next couple of years. And, you know, there's so many analogies of the river being life and all this stuff. We're, we're in read and run mode right now. And we're not really sure what's around the bend. Um, but what we're really good at as river guides is adjusting and finding, finding the path. So that's what we're going to do. I love it. All right. Well, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. And uh, we're probably going to have a whole other podcast that is going to be dedicated just to talking about the Klamath Basin. You are a wealth of information about that area. And I'm sure you could talk much longer on it. Uh, but we are going to close up this podcast. 
I'm really glad that you took some time out to let me do this with you, and I can't wait to have you on again. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to the next one. See you later, everybody.